You're listening to a message provided by Antioch Bible Baptist Church in Gladstone, Missouri. We intend this to be a helpful resource to you as you grow in your walk with Jesus Christ. This is intended especially for those who are unable to attend our worship gatherings and therefore were unable to hear the teaching of God's Word. This should not replace your gathering with our church as a member. If you're checking us out for the first time and are looking for a church to visit, we hope that you enjoy this content and that it impacts you personally. Thanks for listening. When we first began, um, if you were with us, when we first began 2022, um, this journey through the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Pastor Steve let us know um, that the overarching theme in the Gospel of Matthew is Jesus is King. And the mission of the King that began in Bethlehem in the beginning of Matthew, being born of a virgin, Jesus being born of a virgin, is now approaching the end as Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem where he will do what he said he came to do. We know in the Gospel of Matthew that King Herod tried to stop this king's mission by killing him as a baby. We know that Satan tried to stop the king's mission in the wilderness by trying to have Jesus violate his own word. We know that throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to see even more here coming up, how the religious leaders have tried to stop this king's mission. And even his own disciples have tried to stop the king's mission when he talked about his death that was coming. But here's the thing, church, nothing will stop the mission of this king. And praise God for that. So as we finish out Matthew 20 this morning, we're going to look at verses 17 through 34. And I believe we can break it down into three sections today. I hope to break it down into three sections for you. First, in verses 17 through 19, the king proclaims the cost. In verses 20 through 28, the king defines greatness. And in verses 29 through 34, the king gives sight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, how it transforms our lives. The Bible says, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Thank you, um, Holy Spirit, for instructing us in your truth. And we can hear it, receive it, and grow, and grow in the grace thereby. I pray, God, um, as I, I truly I always do, I want to decrease and you increase. I, if no one remembers anything about me, I am great with that. I want them to remember you, the King. And so, God, I pray that we will see you more clear today in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, I want to start by first, in this, these first three verses, something, the King proclaims the cost. Reading verses 17 through 19, if you have your Bible or your electronic device, follow along with me or it's on the screen here. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside. And on the way, he said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. and They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will be raised on the third day. We begin this text by, 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 by the word saying that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. Now, I thought about this like this morning. Should I have a map up here for you? But if you have a map in your Bible or look it up, when it says going up 
On a map, geographically, that doesn't make sense because when you look at a map, it would show going downward to the south and to the west. As Jericho was about 1,000 feet below sea, but since Jericho was 1,000 feet below sea level, and Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level, when it says they're going up topographically, that's what they are doing. Jesus and his disciples are going to begin making the ascent up to Jerusalem. Many of the Psalms are Psalms of ascent as the people of Israel would sing songs as they were going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And so that's one of the reasons why they're going to Jerusalem is to celebrate the Passover. And so Jesus is making his way up to Jerusalem. In this text, it should be noted that he takes the disciples aside, meaning that the crowd is still with him. It's not just the 12 disciples here. There's a crowd following along as usually there was with Jesus. Very rarely was he with just them alone. There was always others in the fringe. When we see the word in this text, see, if you're a parent, I think I can get a witness on this. There's been times in your life, if you're like me, maybe you haven't, where you tell your kids, look at me. (laughs) Okay, okay. Like, not, not to anything else. Look at me. Okay, have you been there, parents? Okay, all right, maybe not. Oh, no. Okay, I have many times, many times. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples, his kids. When he says, see, he's saying, look at me. This is the third time that Jesus tells his disciples that he will die. First time we see it in Matthew is in Matthew 16, right after he tells them, I will build my church. Next, we see it in Matthew 17, right after the transfiguration of Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. He tells them and he will die. This time, he tells them, one, he's first going to be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. So who are the chief priests? They were the hereditary aristocracy of the priesthood. The highest position within that group would be the high priest, and that was an office handed down from father to son. The scribes, on the other hand, did not achieve their position because of what family they were born into. They got theirs by learning. This elite group of religious leaders came to hate, and not just hate, vehemently hate, and oppose Jesus because he threatened their hypocritical and ungodly system of power. So that's where we're at right now. Jesus is telling his disciples, I'm going to be first handed over to the chief priests and the scribes. But then he goes on to say in verse 19, he says, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus goes on to say that he will then be handed over to the Gentiles. Think about this church. I think we lose this a little bit. Gentiles for Jewish people, not well liked. The Romans, Gentiles, who they were under Roman captivity, And Jesus' own people, his own countrymen, are going to turn him over to a pagan people. That's the weight of what's going on here. One of my prayers this week is hoping, as we read this text, you feel the weight of what Jesus is doing here. He is making his way to the cross. These are some of his last days with his disciples. Why did they have to hand, why did this chief priest and the scribes have to hand Jesus? Why is he saying this? Why does he have to be handed over to the Gentiles? Why is that important? 
any nation that was under, was a subject of Rome, under Roman captivity, no nation could do their own executions on their own. They had to get the approval of the Romans. And so when it says, I will be handed over to the Gentiles, that's the only way they could have crucified Jesus, that Rome had to give permission. So when we see him standing before Pontius Pilate, that was all under the knowledge of God. Jesus is saying that had to be because the Jews could not, the Jewish people, the religious leaders could not execute him on their own decree. They had to get the approval. He goes on to tell his disciples that he will die, which he had told them that before in Matthew 16 and Matthew 17. What is different about this particular time? He tells them he will die by crucifixion. He had not told them that yet how he would die. He would just say he would die. Why is that important? Because this, from the very beginning, has been a planned event in the life of Jesus Christ. If we go back to the Gospel of Luke, if we were to look at Luke, when Joseph and Mary take their son Jesus to the temple to be blessed by Simeon, here's what it says in Luke chapter 2. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. He's telling them right then, Jesus has come for a mission. But then he gets personal with Mary. And for a sign that is opposed, and he says this to Mary, a sword will pierce through your own soul also. And so the thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. We see on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaching and thousands come to faith in Jesus Christ. Peter says this publicly. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. In your midst, meaning you saw this, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up. Here we go back. Delivered up according to what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The crucifixion of his son, Jesus Christ, did not take God the Father by surprise. It was the foreknowledge of God. But Peter goes on to say, you crucified, you killed him by the hands of lawless men. And then it goes, I think it goes on to write, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Jesus in this moment is announcing something that was even told to his parents when they took him to the priest. Peter preached it on the day of Pentecost. That is important, church, to know that this was a planned event in God's redemptive story. But here's the thing, though. The disciples in this moment, they knew they were going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with Jesus Christ. What they did not know that God himself was going to be the ultimate Passover. They did not know that. Even though he's telling them what must happen to him, they, in this moment, were still not getting it. If, you were to, if, you were to, if, we were, if we went to the Gospel of Mark, when Mark tells this story in this moment in time with Jesus and disciples, I think you feel even a greater weight in this moment. Mark records in his Gospel, in Mark 10, 32, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, meaning they were following behind him. And they 
were amazed. And what are the next verse? And those who followed were afraid. You feel the weight. Because it's not just Jesus going up to Jerusalem to have this happen. They are going with him. They're probably wondering, what will happen to us as well then? Will we be handed over as well maybe? They were afraid. And you would think in this moment, this weighty moment, this Jesus, this king, whom they had seen, give sight to the blind, make the lame walk, the deaf hear, the mute speak. He's raising people from the dead. There's nothing he can't do. They've seen him call creation and say, Peace be still, and literally the waves and the winds stop at a moment's notice. Like it's not a casual stop, it's immediate. He even orders creation. And here you would think in this moment, they're following Jesus, he just told them this, and you'd think they either one, they'd be grieving in their hearts, or asking questions, and, and maybe they did. We just don't see it. We don't have that record in our, in our, in, in, in our, in our Bible. But what do they do? They're going to talk about how great they can be. So here we go to the next moment. The king where Jesus the king defines greatness. We read in verses 20 through 22. Then the mother, who we know is Salome, the mother of the, of the sons of Zebedee, came up to him with her sons. Every grown man's dream. A mom coming and speaking for their son. I, t- I told Steve earlier, I, Bob, I'm glad, when, when I, I'm glad my mom, Sharon, never came to you, Bob, and said, I want some special favors from Bob. I don't think she did. If she did, I, I, you, you kept it quiet. But, that never, that, that would, but, but, but in, in fairness to Salome, we're going to see. She didn't do this on her own. These grown men asked her to do this. We're going to see from this text. Um, they're going to they're they're ask their mom, please, hey, mom, maybe if you go to Jesus... And ask this favor. So we continue in that, this verse here. This is great. Kneeling before him, and she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? So the mom, and and. She, she does something very reverent here. I mean, she's putting on the full court press. She's not just asking Jesus. She's kneeling before Jesus, which is probably both knees bowed to the ground asking this request. I mean, she is really in this moment pleading with Jesus to give her some. They might be thinking in this moment, If we don't ask, Peter, we know we'll ask. (laughs) So we want to get ahead of the game here. She treats him like a king, which is good. And she's hoping in this moment to manipulate Jesus into honoring the request of her sons, James and John, whom she loved very much. But we know the request ultimately comes from the sons because in verse 22, he speaks to them. Not to her, to the boys, James and John. And he tells them right away, you speak out of ignorance. You have no idea what you are asking. 
you're not understanding the weight of what you are asking. When Jesus speaks of the cup he will drink, he is speaking of drinking down the wrath of God in place of sinners. Church, when we hear, when we see Jesus being crucified, we, we, we need to know this. Crucifixion was not unusual for thousands of people. They had seen thousands of people die on a cross. Jesus' death on a cross was not unusual. They walked by people being crucified along the road every, many, many days. What was unique and special about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? He didn't just die the physical death. He took on the sins of all humanity. That was unique. He drank the entire wrath of God for you and I. When that literally that term to drink the cup, it literally meant to drink the full measure, leaving nothing. It was a common expression meant to stay with something to the end, to endure to the limits, whatever the cost. Jesus is telling James and John and their mom, as the other disciples are hearing all this, he, Jesus, our king, is going to willingly suffer and die on our behalf. And they, he says, you want no part of that. You don't know what you're asking. We go on to read in verse 23. He said to them, Jesus, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared for by my Father. Jesus tells James and John that they will one day drink this cup, but not now. Little did Salome, their mom, realize that the path to the throne is going to be a difficult one for her sons. They were just thinking kingdom, greatness. Jesus says, suffering, death. If we read in Acts chapter 12, if you would, if you, in your Bibles you can look this up, in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we know from the writings in Acts that in Acts chapter 12 that James becomes the first martyr. He, in that moment, drinks the cup. We know from church history that John was thrown into boiling oil. Think about that. And lives. I can't imagine even living after that. That sounds horrific. Exiled to the Isle of Patmos to live out the rest of his days. In my reading, Warren Wiersbe, who we had actually come here one time for a an event we had here one time, just a sweet, gentle man. He's now went to be with the Lord. Pastor Moody Church in Chicago for many years. He wrote this about this text. Jesus spoke about a cross, but they were interested in a crown. Jesus is telling James and John, Salome, and the other disciples, you can't wear the crown until you bear the cross. And what he's saying is, you two boys, will, you will bear the cross. And my father will remember you. He will prepare you for that moment. 
So then we get to verse 24. Jesus continues. And when the ten heard it, here we go. Here's the other guys right now. They were indignant at the two brothers. What do you mean they're indignant? Pride. I can't believe they asked. We should have been the ones that asked. We want this too, Jesus. We don't want to be left out of this deal. What have we been talking about throughout Matthew 20 and 18 and 19? Pride of man. And it is coming to the front and Jesus sees their hearts in this moment. So they are not excused from what's going on right here. Yes, James and John and the mom are the ones who asked, but he knows all of them want this. They all want the same thing. Even though Jesus had told them earlier in Matthew 18, what does greatness look like? A little child coming to me. They'd heard Jesus talk about this. And yet here they are again, not getting it. Church, one of the reasons why we gather every Sunday, yes, to encourage one another, to build one another, but one of the reasons why it is important for us as a follower of Jesus Christ to gather every Sunday and be under the teaching of his word, why? To remember. Because we will forget. We will forget. We need to remember all that he has done for us because we are so full of human pride, we will forget what he has done for us. We go on to read in verses 25 to 27. Jesus continues here. But Jesus called them to him. So he's again calling the disciples to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. And it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. He calls them to himself and he says, The world, the Gentiles, the ones they detest, this is what they do. They lord it over them. Speaking of the Romans here, they remind you every day how low you are. That you are nothing but dogs. You are their, you, you, they lord it and want you to serve them in any, any whim they have. Whatever they want, you're to do. That's what the world does. That's what the Gentiles, that's what greatness looks like in their eyes. Jesus is exposing in this moment that the desires that they are asking Jesus for of greatness is all of the flesh. It's pride. It's what's in it for me. Where's my position going to be? And remember what Jesus had just told them earlier? That they will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So they don't, that's not good enough. They want even greater positions of authority. Pride begets pride. And Jesus is going right to the heart of the matter here. As I was writing this, I thought, it's easy to look at the disciples and think, man, how dare they in this moment, but we are just like them. Because most of us really, if you really got it down to it, we want celebrity status, not servant status. We want as many followers as possible. We want as many likes as possible, as many hearts as possible. 
Fill in the blank. I was thinking even for those pastors that men that I, I, I've known from a distance, I've read books, I've, I've listened to them on their sermons and ones I could name you right now who the reason they are no longer in the position they are is because they wanted greatness. And they fell because they were lording it over their people like the Gentile rulers. One of the ways you could pray for our team always is keep us humble. To lead in humility and not to hold it over. I mean that sincerely. Because it's a danger for all of us. Jesus is telling his disciples it's God's glory, not their own reputation that's at stake here. Jesus is turning the world's greatness upside down. The world says, promote yourself, toot your horn, glorify yourself, which is all the opposite of spiritual greatness. Jesus is telling his disciples, no one may ever recognize you, but I will recognize you by the way you give your life for others. In the kingdom of heaven, church, the pyramid is turned upside down. The world, top, all those underneath, serve, serve you. God's way of leadership and greatness, we're at the bottom. It's turned upside down. In verse 26, Jesus even says, it's not wrong necessarily to desire greatness in the kingdom. It's only wrong to seek it filled with pride, power, and arrogance. In God's eyes, the one who is great is the one who is a willing servant. I can't tell you how many times in all my years here hearing Pastor Bob says, you want to be, if, you, if you want to look like Jesus, you serve. Unlike earthly rulers who were served by lowly servants, Jesus came to be our lowly servant. Think about where the story of Matthew began, church. It began in a trough. Not the beautiful manger picture we see at Christmas, by the way. It would have been dug into a hole, surrounded by farm animals, barn animals, the stink, manure, not the way a king is usually born. They're usually born in a palace. Our king was born in a, in a cave, in a, surrounded by sheep and goats and cows. Think of where it started with this king. I think of Isaiah 53 prophesying of this servant, this king, where Isaiah writes in the Old Testament, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Who? This righteous servant. Paul, speaking to the church at Philippi in chapter 2, this great passage on humility writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility 
count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but what? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What God wants to take on flesh like us. I'm about to turn 60. I don't know how you are. The older you get, you feel different things. Jesus did that for us. That means he felt pain. He felt hurt. When he's at the grave with Lazarus, he weeps. When he sees them without a shepherd, he has compassion. He feels it in the moment that they need a shepherd. When he's, when he's being beaten and fl- he's feeling all that, church. All of that. Why? Because he took on human flesh. He lowered himself to us. That's this king we're talking about. He goes on to write in verse 28. Or say... Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The emphasis on that, even as the Son of Man, what Jesus is saying, what, should, what characterizes me as a servant should characterize my followers. That's how we are to live. Jesus is a supreme example of humility and servanthood. Husbands, serve your wife. Wives, serve your husband. Dads, serve your kids. Moms, serve your kids. Kids, serve your parents. When we go into work, how can we serve those around us rather than saying, what is in it for me? What do I want? What do I get? That's not natural. Our natural tendencies, I want those to cater to me. I want it as easy as possible. And Jesus is saying to be great. It's the opposite. It's supernatural. He goes on to say in that verse that he will give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom, ransom in the Greek is lutron. It's a word that can refer to a payment made to release someone from slavery. In our, in our modern day age, we can compare it to a hostage situation where someone makes payment to free them from being a hostage. Before you knew Jesus Christ, before I knew Jesus Christ, I did not know it, but I was. I was a slave. I was a hostage to sin. I was held by it. Jesus paid the price that I no longer am a slave or hostage to sin. It doesn't mean sin doesn't affect me. It just means that at the end of the day, I am free in Jesus Christ. He made me free. Not Todd Slagle. I could not free myself. He made me free. How? He came to die on a cross. He paid a price I could not pay. And finally, we get to this. Oh, before I get to that, don't miss that word for. In verse 28, for many. It literally means in place of. Jesus took our place on the cross. 
in place of Todd, in place of filling your name. He took your place on the cross. And then we get to this last part, the king gives sight. As Jesus and his disciples are going out of Jericho, Jesus puts into practice what he had just told his disciples by becoming a servant to two rejected blind beggars, two nobodies, two guys that nobody even paid attention to most of the time. But here's the difference here. These blind beggars aren't looking for greatness in the kingdom. They're looking for God's mercy. Why? Because they knew they deserve nothing. That's humility versus pride. In verses 29 and 30, it says this. And they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. I should yell it louder, actually, because it's exclamation point here. That word behold is calling special attention to something or someone. In this case, two blind men. Blind men in that day could not work unless they had family who cared for them. They were generally begging for whatever, whatever, whatever needs they had. The reason they would have been outside the city gates because they knew that if anybody coming into the city or usually those coming out of the city had traveling money. And so they knew there would be the best place to get people to possibly give them any kind of offering to help them. In this account, Matthew says two blind men. If we were to look at the account of Mark and Luke, it only names one blind man, Mark Bartimaeus. What's the difference? Is there a discrepancy? Steve's talked about this before. There is no discrepancy. More than likely, Bartimaeus was more well-known in church history. He could have been the more vocal one. We also know Matthew, again, is writing to a Jewish audience here. And what is important, to, in the, according to the Old Testament, two or more witnesses. And so we have two blind men in this account. And they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. They are crying out loud. This word cried out literally means they're insane. Like they are crying out like an insane person would. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to compare this to a woman giving birth, but that's the other description. To a woman giving childbirth, they're yelling that loud. So ladies, please hear me. Don't send me emails that I'm comparing you to an insane person. I'm not. That's not, it's, it's, it's what it means. How did they know in this moment, they're blind, to cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David? We have no account that Jesus had been to Jericho. So it's highly, and it's highly unlikely they could travel because they were blind. Probably most likely, they had heard travelers come through. Have you heard about this king, this man named Jesus, who heals people? including those who are blind. But what does the crowd do? They're just, man, they tell them, shut up. Be quiet. We don't want to hear nothing. And what do they do? They cry out even louder. Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. In verse, what, 31 there. They cry out again. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. It is amazing in this moment that two blind men could see better than the crowd. 
Physically, they could see nothing, but spiritually, they are seeing a great deal. By calling Jesus by his messianic title, Son of David, these blind men verbalized their recognition of who Jesus was. King. And even though they were loud in the midst of the crowd, they cried out in humility by saying, have mercy on us. Their need was to see. But in that moment, they realized they deserved nothing. Please, Jesus, have mercy on us. Then we read verse 32. And it writes, And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? So Jesus, they get his attention. Don't you love that about Jesus? He is on a mission, and he takes time for them. They're nothing. But here's what I do know that they are. They are image bearers of the Most High God. Society didn't care about them. Just like the woman with the issue of blood. Just throughout the pages of Scripture, he takes time for those that nobody cares about. What a king. And you ask the question, why is he asking them what they want? I mean, he clearly sees they're blind. Like, what's the deal here? I think in this moment, he's teaching us something. He's teaching his disciples something here. When you want something, ask specifically for it. Not a general request. Don't give me nine things before you get to what you really want. Just tell me up front, what do you want? Church, when we go to him in prayer, just tell him what you're looking for. Why? Because then when he answers it, he gets all the praise. He gets all the credit for what that answer prayer. And they tell him in verse 33, they get right to it. What? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. It says that Jesus has pity on them. That literally means he has mercy on them. He opens their eyes and they're immediately opened. Not a fog, not a better wear glasses for a while. No, it's full sight. Boom. Awesome. This verse then goes on to say, not only did he heal them, they followed him. As we, as we will see in the weeks to come as we continue through Matthew, these guys, this Bartimaeus and this other man who follow Jesus, that means they're going to go with him into Jerusalem. They're going to see the crowds shout, Hosanna. They're going to see Jesus go into the temple most likely and turn over the tables of the money changers. They're going to see Jesus, if they hung around with him long enough, they're going to see him arrested and flogged and mocked and crucified. And if they stick with him long enough, they're going to see him raised from the dead. But you know what the first thing they see when he heals them is him. Yeah. Wow. The first thing their eyes got to see was Jesus. Can you imagine that? Wow. Fanny Crosby, one of the greatest hymn writers who wrote over 8,000 songs. It's amazing. Um, songs like To God Be the Glory, um, Give Me Jesus. Um, Jesus is tenderly calling. She became blind as a young girl. A minister once said to her one day, Miss Crosby, 
with all of the gifts God has given you, it's a pity you are blind. She smiled and said, if I had one request to ask God, it would be, I wish I could have been born blind. The minister was amazed at this reply as she went on to explain, because then the first face that would ever gladden my sight would be my savior. These two blind men had that experience. They got to see Jesus face to face. But before they saw physically, I believe they saw spiritually when they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Church, I believe most man in this room, in this world, most people can see, can hear, we can look good, we can have all that is needed in this world, but spiritually, we can be blind and destitute. Having everything in this world has to offer, but to be spiritually blind is worse than anything. Jesus, speaking to the seven churches in Revelation, speaking to the church at Laodicea, says this, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus is telling the Laodicean church that he has a different assessment than what they think of themselves. He's basically saying, you think you are all together, but you are lacking. You are blind. Church at Antioch, just like the church at Laodicea, we too can have the appearance of having everything we need. We can have good homes, good jobs, good bank accounts, good 401ks, good family. Man, they're in, man everything's going great, but we too can be lacking. We too can be blind to our need for Christ. As we think about following this king through the words Jesus spoke to his disciples in Matthew 20 and the blind men in Matthew 20, I want us to consider these three important truths this week. Think about that this week. One, the king proclaims the cost. The son of man will be delivered over the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Church, Remember all that it cost Jesus. I told you earlier, while I was studying this week, there's no way I could feel the weight of Jesus. Please hear me on this. You just feel the weight. He knows he's going to his death. Church, you realize he could have avoided it, but he didn't. He knew what was happening, what was coming. And he still did it for us. Secondly, the king defines greatness. Think about this week what greatness really looks like. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you want to be great as God wants you to be great, serve others like Jesus. And I praise God, most of you in here, man, I know you. You're serving. Man, you come. You're serving here at the church. I'd encourage you, let us never fall into the trap of being a consumer. Let us be servants of the king. At the, in our homes, in the church, in our work, in our neighborhoods, whatever that looks like. And then finally this week, think about this. The king gives sight. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes and immediately recovered their sight and followed him. My question to you today, perhaps in this room, 
Has Jesus opened your eyes to see him as king and savior, or are you still spiritually blind? The Apostle Paul says the gospel is hid to them that are lost. Until I came to faith in Jesus Christ at 24, I was blind. I might as well have my eyes closed. Praise God, the king opens eyes. Not just physically, even greater than that, spiritually. To know him, to see him as he is. He's king. And so maybe today, you're sitting here and you've been kind of Jesus has been kept him at a distance a little bit. Maybe you've looked at him from afar, but you've never had your eyes open to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today can be that day where your eyes can be opened and your life can be changed. And just like those blind men did, not only did their eyes get opened, they followed him. They became disciples of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. You're always welcome at Antioch. If you desire more information, please go to AntiochBBC.org. That's AntiochBBC.org. God's best to you.